Across the street from the Texas State Capitol in Austin, this is the Trey Blocker Show, starring Charlie Hodge and Trey Blocker, with today's guest, Texas State Senator Larry Taylor. And here's Trey Blocker. Thank you, Charlie Hodge, and welcome, everyone, to the Trey Blocker Show, and welcome, Senator Larry Taylor. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. (laughs) Thanks for coming on. Uh, You know, we are almost at the end of this legislative session, are we not? I think we're about three weeks short. Oh, we're getting close. We're getting close. I can feel it. How would you sum up this legislative session in one sentence or less? Interesting and different, as they all are. Did you say indifferent? Interesting and different, (laughs) as they all are. Indifferent. Indifferent. This is my eighth session, uh, and every one of them has been different. Every one of them has a different personality. Everyone has surprises and issues you didn't think were coming and this one is falling true to form. The one thing you can predict about the legislature, it's unpredictable. And they are never the same. Never the same. Never the same. And like I said, this is my eighth one. They're all different. To give our audience some background on you, Senator, you were raised in Friendswood, Texas. You graduated from Baylor University. You were elected to the Texas House of Representatives in 2003, Texas Senate in 2012. And you know, interestingly, when I was looking through your bio, there are all these wonderful accolades, and so I'm going to have to read through some of them. I hope I don't embarrass you too much, but uh, you were named a taxpayer advocate by the Texans for Fiscal Responsibility, champion of free enterprise by Texas Association of Business, courageous conservative by the Texas Conservative Coalition, A-rated by the Texas State Rifle Association, and a 100% rating by Texas Right to Life. So with that kind of resume, when are you running for governor? <laughs> right now, I'm just running to get out of here May 29th. <laughs> In fact, people ask me all the time, are you running for re-election? Is it, right now is not the time to ask me. <clears throat> not, not towards the end of the session. So another thing that our audience would probably like to know is that the Senate has staggered terms. So they're four-year terms, but half of the Senate is up for election in any given election cycle than the other half the other does that make sense? I'm yeah, not yeah. making any sense today. So half will be up in 18, then half will be up in uh, 20. I, I didn't know that. That's great. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so are you up in 18 or not up in 18? I'm not. I just was reelected. Oh, congratulations. Congratulations. So you got plenty of time to think about whether you're going to run for governor. Yeah, well, right. <laughs> <laughs> now, like I say, I've got four more years in the Senate. And we'll see where so we I'm, go tr- I'm trying to set a trap here. He's not yeah. falling into it. So, Senator, tell us a little bit about your Senate district. Where are you located? What's your district like? What do the people care about down there? Well, I'm in three counties. I have almost all of Galveston County. I don't have Bolivar Peninsula. I have the northern part of Brazoria County, and then I have southeast Harris County, which includes Pasadena and the San Jacinto Monument. Right. Go up to the Ship Channel. I have all the communities along Galveston Bay. I mean, I've got a great district. Galveston Island, all the history there. NASA is in my district. Um, I just really have a really impressive district. So that actually does make me think of something. Last week, and we just released this episode uh, this week, we had Doug Coors in here, who's the founder of Inland Surf Park, and and uh, you met him last week, I believe it was, over in the Capitol, and you mentioned to him that he needed to go tanker surfing with you. Yes. Is that you that said that to him? Yes. Because he yes. brought that up, and I thought that was something else. I mean. What is, what is tanker surfing? Well, we will take him to, to do that. And by the way, it's it's Galveston Bay. You know, our Houston ship channel is about 50 miles long. A large part of that goes right up to the middle of Galveston Bay up the ship channel. So you have, sh- it's a fairly shallow bay. 
but we have a 45 foot deep channel down the middle of it. And so what happens, you have these big tankers, got to be a big ship and there's apps on your phone that actually tell like you, an oil tanker, one of the, like oil something that size. sitting low in the water going 10 to 11 knots and it pushes a lot of water. It hits that shallow water, just like a wave on the beach. You have a swell hits shallow water. It jacks up and makes a big wave in middle of Galveston Bay. Those ships are running for a number of miles and you get one of those things that jacks up in the right spot in the shallow water. You, you can catch a wave and go five, six minutes on one wave. Head high. <laughs> redneck nice surfing. Or, or roughneck surfing, I should well, say. Well, I don't uh, know if it's redneck only because of the sunburn, but it's, <laughs> it's a lot of fun. And there's an app for that? Well, there's an app that tells you what kind of ships there are. As far as being able to do it, it's just purely experience. And the guys I go with, are you know, one's a retired ship pilot. The other one's the captain of the uh, Sam Houston, which is the port of Houston's uh, visitor boat that they take people up around tours, and it has some other surfing buddies been doing it for years and years. Charlie, you just paddle like mad? No, well, in some cases, uh, one guy has a smaller boat; he gets out a lot closer to it. But you have to get out in the water. You have to know about where it's going to be, and you watch for that wave to start feathering at the top. You know, it's, it's time to catch it. And you paddle into it, and it's just unbelievable. That seems it, dangerous. It, it sounds like a hold my beer and watch this <laughs> <Yeah>. moment. <laughs> well, in five or a, six minutes, I mean, that's an epic ride uh, on a wave. A long wave normally is 20 seconds. Yeah, And to get out there and be on a wave for four, five, six minutes. God bless long. Texas. No yeah. doubt. We, have people, have, we literally have people come from Hawaii to come over and do this. Well, speaking of Hawaii, you mm. lived in Hawaii. Is that I where did. you learned how to surf? Actually, I grew up surfing. Okay. Uh, and I'm sorry we don't have the ability to show pictures, but yeah, you know, Galveston, in fact, just last weekend before last, we had about a, a shoulder high swell come in. Nice. Covering people, you know, people getting covered up, nice long walls. But when these fronts are coming, people think about, well, there's no waves in Galveston because they go to Galveston during the summer, which is our doldrums, um. unless there's a storm. But spring and fall, we had these fronts. When you have these fronts coming through, they, they have a real strong onshore wind. And then once the front crosses offshore, that wind turns around back around to the north, offshore, smooths out for about several hours, you have great waves. So is that your stress reliever during session as you pick up the board and go do a little surfing on the weekend? Well, it's hard to get those fronts to time with the schedule that I have up here. But <laughs> gotcha. I did go surfing uh, January 2nd and 3rd before we started up here. That's pretty nice. It's a great way to start the year. So how long did you live in Hawaii? About two and a half years. Actually, two and a half years almost exactly. Mm. That, that sounds was, good. Was it Maui? On, on Oahu. Oh, on Oahu. Yeah, my, my wife got her master's degree over there. So Nice. Was uh was that the point of the trip, or was she there and she just thought, man. That was her point. Uh, my point was going surfing. <laughs> See? Something productive got done. Absolutely. Over Absolutely. So the surf park is about to open back up. Um, we'll have to drag you out there. It's a, it's Those are incredible waves he's making out there. I'm looking forward to trying that. I have a couple friends that have been, and they were – pretty pumped about it want to go back out so once again i get my schedule line up when it was working so I'm, I'm looking forward to doing that it'll be fun so i hate to talk about business but senator you're currently chairing the senate committee on education and i've you... learned so much on this deal already this is amazing <laughs> <laughs> well that, that's what we're here for that is what we're here for we're trying to educate everybody including ourselves um you have passed out of the Senate uh, this session, Senate Bill 3, which is a school choice bill. Would you tell us a little bit about that and uh, why you think that's important? Well, uh, you know, it's interesting. Texas is very conservative in so many ways, and we, and we lead in so many things, except for on school choice, which is really competition. And over 28 other states have already passed some type of school choice, but in Texas we have not. And, and my, my main thing on school choice is 
You know, some people just have a built-in visceral reaction to hear school choice. They call vouchers and all this other thing, and they just, we, we can't have that. And it, it's really unfortunate because, you know, we have a lot of really good school districts in Texas, and we have some that really aren't doing a good job. And most people have choice. Most people that have money can choose where they live. I mean, if your neighborhood school is not doing well, you pick up and pick out where you want to go based on how the schools are doing. Right. And so this was really de- designed around low-income people because people are exercising choice. And some places have a numerous choices for even on public education with, which, with education with charter schools and that. But there are some that don't. And, and you look at the most the largest growing demographic we have in our state is lower socioeconomic. And if we continue on the path we're on, where these people are being left behind, and that's our largest percentage of our population, our state will not be the leader it is today in the future. So my goal, and it's for every student, is try to meet every student where they are. And so we talk about the students who are, are, are trapped in a neighborhood school that's not doing well. We've had some, we've sped up the process to close some down and have management brought in that but you can't get to all of them. So having some number of kids that can pick and go somewhere else, because it's a lot of effort. Think about it. If you're a parent of a, a school child today, it's so easy to go to public school. Sure. And there's so many advantages of the public school. First of all, they come pick up your kid at the door, take them to school, bring them back. The the, the advantages they have being the um, are the existing system. That's where everyone's used to going. They have the facilities. They have all the activities. In a lot of these towns across Texas, that's the center of town. The whole town is focused on what's going on at their, their schools. And so most parents want to be there. But there's some, a small percentage, for whatever reason, whether it's a special needs child or behavioral issues with their child or just the child doesn't fit in that situation or they may be bullied. You know, some, t- some kids get off, stepped on the wrong foot and take off the wrong direction and they never can get corrected. Right. Because there were those same kids growing up. Yeah, family dynamics are unique. But a very small percentage of our kids could take advantage of something like this. And frankly, the day before we brought the day of that that hearing, I'm sorry, on the floor when we brought up the uh, SB three on the floor, we had a Senate hearing on special needs kids, mm-hmm. and we had parents testifying how they spent seven and eight years fighting their local district trying to get the the specific care they needed for their child and the specific needs they had, and their school was fighting against them for seven, eight years. Imagine how empowering that would be for that parent to say, look, you guys need to take care of this child with what they need, or I'm going to go somewhere else. Right. So then the school says, well, you know, now it's a whole different dynamic. So the school could say, well, fine, take your money and go, or they can take care of that child. Either way, the child is being taken care of. Good. And I think that's the real important thing we need to know. Are we taking care of the parents and the adults? I'm sorry, the adults? In the system, are we taking care of parents and children? And who knows that child better than the, than the parent? And one of the, the only, you know, first of all, if people would look at the bill we passed, we didn't take money out of the school system. We, we used money outside the foundation school program. So a child who chose this option was getting money outside of foundation school program. So we weren't affecting that. The school that a child left would actually was going to retain some of that money for a year to give them a transition to losing the child. So we weren't just like, you know, pulling the kid out if they'd already picked a teacher and all that kind of stuff and messing up those dynamics. We were giving a year of transition. And overall, from the whole state budget, we were literally saving money to the point about, about four years out, we were saving about 60-some-odd million dollars a year. So, I mean, if we're trying to be fiscally responsible, get more money in education, here's a way to get more money in education. 
So there are two major components of this bill. You're creating an education savings account and then also a tax credit scholarship program. So what are those two components? Well, the tax credit scholarship is what we passed last session, if you remember. And that was purely, you talk about not using school funds. This was businesses donating money oh, wow. to an educational service organization. So we're, we're like totally, the HEB bucks kind H-E-B of thing. HEB donates money to an educational service organization, and that organization then would take applications from people who qualified based on income, low income, that then they would give scholarships to those people. So it's totally out of the state. And we passed that in the Senate last session, didn't get out of the House. This time we had the same tax credit scholarship, and we had education savings account. In that case, the money was coming outside the foundation school program, going to parents who once again qualified, low income, special needs, and they could take that money and go to private school. Uh, I'm, I left out one thing on tax credit scholarship. Even for kids who were still in the public school system, we had money in there for low income people to exercise some of the options within, within the school choice in the public schools. It mm-hmm. gave them money for transportation or tutoring or some of those things. So we were trying to take care of, once again, I'm trying to meet the needs of every child. Right. Uh, particularly those who can't afford it. You know, many of our parents can afford to do the tutoring and mm-hmm. pay the transportation. But the, ex- the the education savings account is is a scholarship that would be handled by through the comptroller's office where you'd get people who qualify would get that money to go and apply to a, a, either tuition or some online things and, and that kind of thing. We took out homeschoolers were not in there. It was a very narrow uh, group of folks that qualified for it. And once again, every, every student who chose that, the state saved money. Because we were getting like seventy five percent of what the state would have paid on the statewide average M and O. Well, on the real quick on the pushback, do you kind of think because the issue is parenting and it's your children? Once again, if the legislature wants to maybe change something about my car or my house or or even anything else in my life, it's different than when it's about your kids. And is that part of the deal? It's so passionate, or people not able to see kind of the the trees through the forest? Well, I mean, is that is that how you explain opposition that comes to this? When, like, as you explain it, it seems like as a parent, you want the you want all the options for your kids. Well, but when it's about your kids, sometimes you, you're not listening. Well, that's where the where the real rub is. When you hear some of the education people talk, this is our money. Yeah, well, it's your money because you have that kid. But whose kid is it? And who really knows that kid better than anybody? It's the parent. Right. And so we, the, the one thing that we kept hearing on the floor during the debate was, well, what about the accountability? These, you know, we're going to send state money, and these kids aren't going to have the same accountability. No, they're not. They're going to have the ultimate accountability because the accountability is going to be with a parent. And guess what? If that option they chose is not performing to their standards, they're going to take their money and go somewhere else. Imagine what kind of pressure that puts on a school. Imagine if we had that pressure on public schools today. Well, you Austin don't have to would benefit. The, yeah, you don't have to go fight, you know, the school board. You say, you know, that's fine if that's the way you want to do it. That's right. This is not meeting the needs of my child. I'm going to go do something else. So it puts it in the hands of the parents to take care of these options. At the same time, we were taking care of the public school system. You know, I was very careful to not harm our public school, school system because that's where 90 to 95 percent of our students can be educated. I'm the chairman of education. We have five million plus students. I'm trying to help meet the needs of all those not punishing them. In fact, I said this during the floor debate. I want people to make, be able to make choices that don't affect someone else's choice. You know, we had people talking about in, in some of our hearings, you know, special needs. That hearing, by the way, was very interesting. You had people that were special needs parents testifying for and against. Hmm. You had gifted wow. and talented testifying for and against. You had teachers testifying for and against. You, you had all these people on both sides of the issue and that was my whole point. You know, the fact if your special needs child is getting taken care of well in your school, 
great. This choice won't affect you. But if it's not, let this parent do that, and they're not going to affect your choice. So, but, but why do you want to keep them from being able to exercise that choice? If it's not affecting you, and frankly, these rural districts, they're all saying, well, there's no competition. Nobody's going to do that. Well, that's fine. So why do you care if somebody else does it if it's not going to affect you? This is a choice that you could make that doesn't affect somebody else's choice. But give the freedom of choice to everybody. That's right. Well, as we've said on this show before, when all else fails, choose freedom. Right. Right. Well, that's the bottom line. Freedom and competition. And that seems to be the bottom line here. And I know I'm getting into the minds of the folks listening to you explain this. And it sounds like common sense. So. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Here we go again. That, that's the Common that's sense. That's the problem mistake. right there. That's the problem right there. So what are the prospects of this bill passing through the House and getting to the governor's desk at this point? It's difficult. We're down the last three weeks. Um, you know, there's some things we'll, you know, that might be able to be done, but it's, it's going to be very difficult. As, as maybe as an amendment on something. But, you know, like I say, we haven't, everybody talks about the, you know, the votes on the floor of the House. Well, they do these test votes, and there's all. And I've been in the house; I was there ten years. There's a whole lot of dynamics going on. Some of these test votes, somebody's mad at somebody, or some other deal's going on. The bill before that got people. That's not really a fair deal. A fair deal is when that bill, as either a bill or an amendment, is presented on the floor. And let's talk about a specific bill, right? And what the provisions are of that bill are, how it benefits everyone, and frankly, how my bill allowed people to make choices that didn't affect anybody else's choice. Then let's have a real vote on it. And I know there's opposition. I mean, I, I, I know that I'm not. Does the opposition, though, do they just not believe you? Or are they just. They haven't. Because it sounds it. like they haven't said out loud that, yes, we just want to meddle in other people's business. We understand it doesn't affect us, but we don't care. Cause, but I'm surely no one says that out loud. I'll tell you this. Some people feel like they can't do it. Whether, whatever, they personal, whatever their personal beliefs are, they feel like at home the pressure is so intense to just say no. Just say no. And then, you know, the, the school, uh, the education establishment tends to band together. You mean in like smaller, I'm, more no, rural areas? No, I'm or everywhere? About statewide. Okay. The, the school administrators, the school board, those, those folks tend to kind of band together and they just say no. And, and on a lot of other issues, we have teacher groups that do the same thing. It doesn't matter what you, we, we try to do teacher prep to help improve our teachers last session and they put out some some just flat-out lies and killed it, and it was actually trying to help teachers. So sometimes you deal with these associations. and that It's kind of like a union. Well, very much Well, it's absolutely a union uh, in many cases, and I've watched this debate for years, and so many times I feel like these teacher groups, these teacher unions, care more about themselves than they do about the students. Am I mischaracterizing that? Well, the classic quote, and I didn't hear it directly, but someone was one of these – teacher folks was testifying at a hearing and somebody asked him like well, when are you gonna start caring about the kids right they said when the kids start paying dues i'll start caring about the kids and i was like oh wow yeah that's so unbelievable that's that's way i don't think most of them are that way but sure. for someone to say that is unfortunate it's incredible at the end of the day if you're in education yes it's a good job but you should be in there for the right reasons it is about educating our kids and our kids need to be mo- moving up at least a grade level at a time. Frankly, in this in this competitive environment, they need to be moving up more than a grade level at a time, right. and they need to be moving up and graduating much higher than where they are now. When you hear some of the statistics we have now, it's alarming. 70% of our students, our former students, 17 to 25, don't qualify for the military. Mm. So 70%. On education? Whether it's academic or physical health. Wow. 70%. That's scary. 
That is scary. But when you hear about the level of kids in remedial education, when they go to community college, it's being about 40%. Does it it weigh on you, like when you hear the national numbers, that there's half a million skilled labor jobs available, but there's no... There's wow. no kids to fill them. I mean, does, well, I mean, well, that's is that our, just kind and of that's the, our challenge. The the environment and the the economy we're moving into or already into, you know, just getting a high school diploma is not enough. It requires post secondary. These jobs, 60, 70, 80 percent require post secondary, and we have like four percent of our kids that are ready. We have a big gap, and that's part of the sixty by thirty you've been hearing about. Right. We have to get our kids up to that level. We have a lot of jobs. You you talk about the growth. A lot of people are moving here for the jobs. You know why they're moving here? Because we don't have the people here that can handle the jobs. I mean, I'm in the area with the chemical plants, the port, and they construction these things. We have a lot of jobs right now. Our community colleges are doing everything they can to keep up with the demand, but it's hard to get kids that can qualify. There's Germans coming here to train. They're coming to Texas to go to school. The Asian countries are moving. A lot of people are moving here. A lot of folks are coming here because they have the skill set, and we don't have it here. So that brings up another interesting point, and that is, over the years, there was this uh, view amongst the education community that every child needs to go to a four-year college and get a bachelor's degree, and that's simply not the case. Not every child is is intended or meant or capable of going and getting a four-year degree and, frankly, doesn't need it. And I know you've done a lot on workforce training and trying to get some of these some of these kids focused on going out and getting the skills to be a underwater welder uh, on some I wish of these I was an underwater rigs. welder they make good money I'm not mean yeah. good money like right. you can make I mean insane money well, right. you can make good money as above water welder yeah too. I mean so it, tell us about that it's not a stigma anymore well you know it started with house bill five and we, we started figuring this out that we had everybody going to college and we set our goals that everybody every kid's going to go to college right. going, going to college and that is just not real world. No, we, not at we all. all have different gifts and talents, and some of us are gifted with our hands, and, and people can build stuff. And frankly, an engineer can draw stuff up all day long, but somebody's got to put it together, and you have to have someone skilled to do that. And House Bill Five started that a couple sessions ago, trying to once again reach all of our students wherever they are. And so we've done that, and, and that's working very well. People are getting, in, you know, working with their high schools, the community colleges, the industry in the area, and working on what they need in that area to make that happen. So now we've got another step that's up this session. You know, we have early college high school where you have kids now graduating. Before they graduate from high school, they get their associate's degree. Right. They've already got two years of college credit. So now we have a PTEC program, which is more for the technology-type folks, people that aren't necessarily going to college, but they're getting these, these certifications and those types of things. So PTEC is like a six-year program where it's, once again, working with community colleges and industry and the schools to put these kids that want to, they're choosing to go in these programs, but they go through and they get to go intern, they work with the industry, yeah. they work with the community colleges, and they have the opportunity to have a job waiting for them at the end of the deal. Sure. And that's one of the bills we'll work on this time. It's a huge thing. And so far it's been wildly popular. We haven't had any pushback on it. We haven't passed it in the House yet, but I'm, I'm hoping they will. But that's a, once again, we are transforming education. It is not going to be this. In, in fact, it's not the same right now as where it was. We're in kind of state of trans, transmit, transition, but we're transforming to much better opportunities. But you know, for a lot of people, they want to keep doing the status quo. But we, right. that is not something we can be satisfied with. Well, status quo, in the old days, to be a billionaire, you had to have a college degree. But all your high-tech billionaires now, it's almost a badge of honor. They did not go to college. Yeah. Maybe they started, but they dropped out because that very thing. 
is they had different needs and they they were being shoved into a mold that just didn't fit them. And a lot of people that went to college are working for those people. Yeah, <laughs> that's so exactly right. It's gifts Absolutely. and talents, and we need to, once again, allow people to have the flexibility to use those gifts and talents, however they're given, to go out and do the best they can. And, and on the other end, we have kids that are never going to go to college, but, man, they can have great careers. You talk about welding, but you got air conditioning and co- contractors. You've got all kinds of people that have technical needs, but we all need them. Uh, and... And and, they, and that's a great career. And some of these people go out and get, an, like, for example, in air conditioning. You get a certification in community college. Well, then you've been working for a guy for what number of years. You may say, maybe I'm, I want to own my own business. And maybe go back to community college and get some more credit hours. They end up going to get a four-year degree yeah. in business or finance or something. They end up employing hundreds of people. We need to keep all those avenues open. And that's part of making sure that every student has the opportunities to, whatever best suits their needs, that they have those opportunities. Sure. Absolutely. And that's what we're trying to do in education. Well, there's no yeah, doubt do you're this. doing yeoman's work in that regard. I want to shift gears a little bit. Uh, you've, you've been doing a lot of incredible things this session, and one of the other pieces of legislation that you've passed out of the Senate is Senate Bill 20, which has been dubbed the Pro-Life Insurance Act. Uh, tell us about that. Well, what, what that bill says is, you know, we, we've already said that the government doesn't have to pay for abortions. What's happening on insurance plans is, you know, we take, you know, an insurance company will sell plans to all these people, and a lot of people don't want to, you know, it's absolutely against their own uh, desires to pay for abortion. Well, they don't want to pay for other people's abortions. Right. So what this does is say, okay, if you think, if you if you want to have abortion coverage, just like on an individual plan uh, before, if you want a maternity, you could buy a maternity rider. And it would cover the routine cost of maternity. And now the normal health plan would cover, you know, the um, large unexpected things. And so if people want to have abortion coverage, the insurance companies can offer a separate rider that covers abortions. And that way the whole pool is not helping to subsidize that. But those who want to get abortions, they can, you know, share that risk among that pool, a much smaller pool of people who want abortion coverage. It just frees everybody else from having to pay for it. Uh, So it's one of those very divisive issues that most people don't want to pay for it. You know, the polling is very high, uh, and so I didn't have a lot of problem getting off the Senate floor. That's good well, to hear. I certainly don't want to have to pay for it. No. And, and again, it sounds like one of those common-sense pieces of legislation, which always gets you hung up somewhere. No. So where is the bill in the process now with three weeks to go? What's well, passed out of the Senate. It's waiting on, um, I think it's in calendars. It's been set for the floor. I'm, asking, I'm looking at my chief of staff. It's, it's in a House bill. The House bill is in the calendars committee. Okay. So we have a companion over there. That can read so it, if you're going to talk on the Trey Blocker show, you have to talk <laughs> into the microphone. And do you make them introduce himself for the record? Yeah, like please, the please, for the record, introduce yourself. <laughs> so we have it. Carrie Chrisman with Senator Taylor's <laughs> office. Thanks, It Carrie. is in the calendars committee, and the Senate bill is in, um, is in the committee in the House. Okay. So give it some odds. What are the prospects? I think it's good. Okay, uh, good. Yeah, I think it's very positive. Very like good. I say, it's three weeks. We got a lot of bills in the air. So we're we're quickly running out of time, and I still have about twenty things I want to talk to you about. But I want to hit one other real quick, and then we'll wrap up. Uh, you've you've done a lot of work and continue to do a lot of work on coastal protection. And when Hurricane Ike came through, you know we've all looked at it and, and realized that if it had been a few miles a different direction, we'd be in in an economic and in an environmental crisis. So. What are we doing to make sure something catastrophic doesn't happen in the future? Well, first of all, 2008, Hurricane Ike, if you'll remember, about five days later was the financial collapse. Right. Uh, as it turned out, 
we were not hit because the storm changed track at the last, and instead of hitting where it was supposed to hit, 20 miles west of the opening of the ship channel, Houston ship channel, it hit, the eye went right up the ship channel, which caused all the structure you saw in Bala. Remember the picture? Sure. Looked like a bomb and your yes. son just scraped it off. That could have been going up the Houston ship channel. That same 45-foot channel I was talking about tanker surfing, imagine all that water going up a 45-foot channel hitting that shallow water that jacks up the same waves I surf, only now it's waves that no one's on, and it's going into those uh, chemical plants. As it turned out, Hurricane Ike was about a $30 billion event. And that was a near miss. Right. If it had gone where it was supposed to be going until it changed track, it would probably been an $60 billion, $80 billion. Uh, but we could have bigger storms. You know, Hurricane Ike was not a, a big storm as far as the rays go. It was a big water event, but it was like a Category 2 hurricane. Sure. So people don't realize that. And and it came out soon thereafter that there's a way to protect it. You know, we, we in, in Holland, which about half of their country is below sea level, They've been dealing with this, these kind of issues for hundreds of years. In fact, we had the largest petrochemical complex in our country, in the Houston region. Right. They had the largest in the world. Oh, wow. And so they're dealing with this issue. And they've got, and I've actually gone and toured their gate. So what happens, they have a gate that's open most of the time. The shipping goes like normal. And then when they have a big event coming, they close the channel and stop that storm surge from going up in the ship channel. So that's what we're working on. It's about a $15 billion project to cover from Freeport all the way to, to the Louisiana-Texas border. $15 billion. Remember, Hurricane Ike was $30 billion one time. I was about to say, it that seems been, like a low number. It could have been 60 or $80 billion, And the th- fact is, it's going to happen numerous times. On average, we have a, a major storm hit that Texas goes every 15 years. So this isn't, you know, that was a one-time event. It'll never happen. It will happen. Oh, it will. And the fact that we can spend $15 billion and protect the Strategic Petroleum Reserve for the U.S., uh, the uh, significantly high percentages of military aviation fuels, commercial aviation fuels. In fact, when our ship channel is closed for a day, the oil price, the gas prices go up on the East Coast almost immediately. Right. So this is a huge economic driver for our state, and the fact that we can have it protected for $15 billion, and, and this is a federal project I'm looking at, because New Orleans, if you remember Katrina, much smaller city, much smaller economic impact on the country. Our federal government gave them an appropriation of $16 billion. And they're below sea level, so a lot of that involves pumping those things. Mm-hmm. So we, we have a much bigger thing to cover here. And the feds, if they did that, they need to come do it here because it's in their best interest. So they're not doing it? Well, it, we're not there yet. We've okay. been working on studies to get a design that we could all agree with. And, and we're very close. We have an environmental study that's not going to be completed, not this summer, but next. And once that is done, then we go to D.C. with our sales package, and we sell this thing and get it done. And, you know, Donald Trump is perfect time. He's talking about infrastructure. The, you, how do you get better infrastructure than this? You know, the benefit-cost ratio on this is off the charts yeah. from what you normally look at on federal projects. This is not a bridge to nowhere. This is a real project that really impacts the U.S., national security as well as the economy. In fact, after that, that economic downturn, since it didn't hit us the way it could have, this state created more jobs than any other state in the country, com- all of them combined. Right. Jobs. It's pretty impressive. Imagine, imagine if that storm had hit where it was headed, we would not have been doing that. So this is a very important thing. So what we're working on this session is setting up, one, to have a local sponsor for the construction phase, which I think will be the general land office. And then we're looking at a local sponsor to maintain it that has taxing authority. So we're, we, we're working on that with the uh, Gulf Coast Authority. Established many years ago, 1969, I believe, has taxing authority they've never exercised. Already had a large part of this region in their district, in their area. 
We've added a couple counties to get all the way to the Louisiana border. And so that's what we're working on to get that done. When do you sleep? <laughs> well, I tell you, during session, not a lot. N- not during session. Generally, right. when I leave here, I'm, I'm literally, I saw one of my colleagues today. You know, they felt tired and says, you know, it's Monday. Well, it's really more than Monday. We've been here for like four months. Yeah, no doubt. And it's just the accumulated just fatigue. I mean, it wears on you after a while. Well, it's mental as well as physical. You have long days, but you're also, the decisions you're working with day in and day out is just fatiguing. And literally, when we're done here, I'll be bone tired. Right. And it, it takes about a month or two just to even get back to the normal schedule, just mm-hmm. not going 90 miles an hour all day long every day, and then being able to go to sleep at a regular time and wake up at a normal time. Well, Senator Larry Taylor, we appreciate you coming on the show and appreciate all of the hard work that you're doing for the state of Texas and wish you the best of luck with getting your bills over the finish line in these last couple of weeks. And uh, pursuant to our tradition here on the Trey Blocker Show, we would like for you to close out uh, this episode with some words of wisdom for our audience to make us all a little smarter and wiser and brighter. Well, mine is a, you know, I have numerous favorite Bible verses. This is one that I kind of strive for. In fact, I just heard at one of my colleagues' funerals. It reminded me. Um, and it comes out of Ephesians, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 4, 7. It says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And for me, that's what I strive for. At the end of the day, when my time is done, I would hope that people would look back and say, that's what I did. And that's, so that's why I strive for it every day. I fight the good fight, finish the race. And, you know, someday I hope to hear God say, well done, my good, faithful servant. Senator Larry Taylor, thanks for coming on the show. We, we hope you come back and join us again sometime. All right. Thank you very much. Appreciate being here. This has been the Trey Blocker Show. You can find all episodes at TreyBlocker.com or check out your favorite podcast downloading app.